This is Winnie Slogan, taking a long view on technology, religion, ethics, and art. Because doing good work takes time. I'm Chris Kreitcho. And I'm Stephen Caradini. And we're NC State. Woo! Woo! We're here at NC State. Thanks to Emily Jones for inviting us to her media writing class where we're doing a live podcast as well as a mini workshop on how to do podcasting. We're really stoked to be here and uh, you'll hear some probably different things than you usually hear. <laughs> so uh, here's to that. This episode, we're going to be talking about self-driving cars because Matt Honan, journalist for a variety of places, wired and included, but mostly everywhere now, <laughs> um, wrote recently an article that said self-driving cars are inevitable. So if you've been listening to this podcast for any length of time, you know that we kind of hate the word inevitable. <laughs> we don't think it's real and that it actually does what it says it does. So we're going to talk about whether or not self-driving cars are actually inevitable. That's, we thought that's we would it. jump at this in, in no small part because, well, we started talking about the issue and then we had a nice long argument about the issue. And I hear from several listeners regularly that their very favorite episodes are the ones where we argue with each other. Both of our wives think that. So. I, I, I got nothing on that front. <laughs> I got nothing. I don't but. understand it. But basically, the question is, okay, so Matt Honan says these are inevitable. There will come a point when almost everybody, if not actually everybody, has a self-driving car. Where instead of having, oh, say, a mix of self-driving cars and human-driven cars, or just like right now, pretty much all human-driven cars, the advent of the technology that's being pioneered by Google and that apparently Uber is working on, that apparently Apple may be working on, in short, that lots and lots of companies are working on right now, that there will come a point when those things are so ubiquitous and, more importantly, that the health and public safety benefits of those things are so ubiquitous that no one will be allowed to drive anymore. And that's the critical word. Matt Honan thinks that no one will be allowed to drive, that there are going to be such great public health benefits that the individual use, the individual right, quote-unquote right, I'm using the air quotes that you can't see, (laughs) the individual mandate of driving yourself will be completely eradicated. And he doesn't say from a political standpoint because he elides as all technologists do, all (laughs) policy, all class, all race, all elements that might have anything to say about this other than technology itself. But he elides that point and says, this is going to happen. Right. And my takeaway from that was, no, that's not quite right. But, and this is where our point of disagreement started to show up, I think, I do think there will come a tipping point when, in most places in the U.S. at least, there comes a point when we go past sort of a boutique approach to these kinds of self-driving cars, where it stops just being a thing that nerdy, rich, white guys do, and starts just being the norm and the default. And that however long this takes, likely a process of decades, there will nonetheless come a point when we get over that hump, when it becomes sufficiently affordable for enough people, and where it becomes sufficiently hard to argue with the public safety benefits, because here's one of the points Honan and many others have made in their reporting on Google self-driving cars. In the millions of miles that these cars have driven, they've been in a dozen-ish accidents, and not one of them was in any strict sense caused by the self-driving cars. They were all caused by human error around them. Mostly being rear-ended. Yeah. 
because people didn't see that they were stopping, etc. And there's some quibbling about whether some of these count as purely the human's fault or not, because the cars weren't behaving as humans would under those circumstances. And so people's reactions to them were reacting to the way that they would react to a human-driven car, and it wasn't a human-driven car, and so there were enough differences in behavior to throw off some of the human drivers. Yeah, Google drivers are essentially that guy that follows all the rules all the time, even at one in the morning in the rain. <laughs> and so there... There is no guy who does that. No, no. <laughs> There are some questions, to be fair there. But on the other hand, they've driven millions of miles with very few accidents, no fatalities from those accidents, and none of them where the cars were at fault. So the argument runs, okay, you get to a point where you have enough of these, and nobody's going to be able to argue that they should be driving themselves anymore in a convincing fashion, because basically at that point, you're just handing someone a good way to kill other people, and mind Steven's making a funny face at me, and I can see it. This isn't my argument. This is the argument, and I'm presenting it. You're handing someone a good way to kill people, and there's no good reason to, and so we're just going to say no more driving by humans. Now, I don't think that's quite right. I think it's ridiculous. <laughs> <laughs> I think it's a little bit absurd. And I think that this is partially the problem of technological adoption and Silicon Valley... Not double speak exactly, but definitely insular bubble speak. Yeah. In that, because technology can, it will. And this has been proven so wrong so many times. Segways, Google Glass, <laughs> like, there's just so many things that came out of Silicon Valley that people were like, guys, this is the, the future. future. So, if not double speak, then Silicon Valley bubble speak, because there's just so many things that have been coming out of Silicon Valley that just don't make any sense at all. These things have been pitched, hyped, everything you can imagine, and they just don't work. Like, they just don't bring the future that people say that they will. Now, they may bring some other future, which I think is a very logical and probable eventuality, is that something's going to happen. But I definitely think that there are so many outside factors that are not considered in Matt Honan's article and in Silicon Valley doublespeak in general, mm -hmm. that it's just hard to even say that self-driving cars are going to get on the road ever. Now, <laughs> do I think it's probable that they're going to get on the road in large numbers? I think it's probable. But it's also equally possible that there's so much red tape that goes into it that they never get on the road in large numbers and that they can't just get past the hurdles of basic legal processes yeah, right one right. of the things we mentioned in our before you go segment a few weeks ago was the hack of chrysler's vehicles which are now network connected and that has some upsides but you could hack them and make them stop while they were driving down the middle of the road one of the big potential hang-ups for any kind of self-driving car is well what happens if someone figures out how to hack them and say hacks a few hundred thousand or million of them all at the same time and we're definitely going to talk about that in a different episode <laughs> because that is a whole conundrum of its own. <laughs> but one of the reasons that I think that inevitability of self-driving cars is not real is that at no point has anybody ever said, like, what these things are going to cost. Like, are these going to cost like Tesla's cost? Like, I'm not going to buy <laughs> I'm not an 86, buying a Tesla. <laughs> I'm not buying an $86,000 car. Like, my car is paid off and it only costs 13000 to begin with and I'm super stoked. <laughs> like, I'm, I'm good. And I only buy used cars. 
I'm going to have to wait even longer if self-driving cars get on the road to get one because I'm not going to go out and buy one new even if it is $13,000 because I have a car that works fine. <laughs> and so that's just a straight-up economic problem. Mm-hmm. That's not even a class-based problem because if you have people that have old cars that are continuously fixing them or if you have people that are in car subcultures like VW bugs <laughs> or VW buses or things that are larger than just a strict because we can do it, then we should. There's so many aspects of that that are going to be so complicated to get those cars off the road if they're going to be replaced by self-driving cars that I think that there's going to have to be a integration, but I think that that integration point will never reach a tipping point. And I think we'll always have this midpoint of self-driving cars and regular human-driven cars on the road. Car clubs ain't going to stop being car clubs. <laughs> They're not. And, and that may be a fair point. The flip side of that is people didn't stop riding horses either, but that's very niche now. And you could make the argument that there will come a point, maybe it's 200 years from now, but that there will come a point when driving a car yourself is kind of like that. And I think it's also worth note in terms of those technological inevitabilities that the car as a mode of transportation, while we are deeply invested in it, and while we have a lot of infrastructure costs sunk into it, it's not that old in the grand scheme of things. It's only a hundred plus years old. And yeah, that's old compared to self-driving cars and it's old compared to the internet, but it might take less time to displace from our culture than it would seem just from how much a part of our culture it is. Yeah, I'm actually going to argue it's going to take longer to displace because it takes me approximately 12 to 14 days (laughs) to get across the country on a horse. And it takes me actually less time to get across the country in a car because Google cars won't speed. (laughs) So it's going to be a slower drive. But you might have less traffic. Well, that's when you develop the concept of traffic. (laughs) Like, there's still going to be some amount of wrecks regardless because a Google car is not going to know what to do when a deer jumps in the middle of the road, even if it's seen a deer a million times, because no one knows what to do because deers are deer. (laughs) And this is another reason that I think there's a rural versus urban divide here. But back to the point about the horses, the upside of horses versus walking was super great (laughs) and the upside of cars versus horses was also super great and the upside of google self-driving cars versus human driven cars is on an individual level right almost negligible right like well i mean you can check your iphone and look at your tweets while you already do that (laughs) but they shouldn't people die now yeah i'm again i'm not making an (laughs) argument against the public health perspective because i'm on board with public health just from a pure implementation standpoint, people are not going to see the value as immediately no. as a horse versus that's, a car. That's absolutely like, right. Black Betsy is definitely different than a Model A, <laughs> whereas like my Corolla is not that much different than the extremely ugly, I'm just going to say it, yeah. cars that Google is making these days. And, and I think those are all valid points. And that's one of the reasons why both in our initial discussion of it and then here as well, I said eventually, because I don't think this is a short-term track. I think one of the things you see in a lot of the tech writing about this, I mean, Honan's piece is talking 2025, and I'm looking at that saying, you're out of your mind, buddy. Have you ever been to anywhere rural? I mean, number one, they're going to have a hard time with dirt roads in ways that they don't have with... Yeah, man. Are Google cars going to off-road for me? Like, <laughs> That's right. Are they going to do that? That's right. Uh, they're not. 
Yeah, which is why it's never going to happen. <laughs> <laughs> right. I, I do think, though, that it's worth noting that it might happen much more and much more strongly in certain places than in others. For example, middle of nowhere North Carolina, not so likely. A pickup truck driven by a human through the mountains is pretty useful. On the other hand, downtown New York City, eh, Maybe not so much. Yeah, I mean, no one drives there anymore anyway. So. Right. Uh, and, and the uptake of other solutions points to that. But I think you will see a major split between rural and urban on this because the value proposition is way higher in an urban context than it is in a rural context because yeah. there are a lot fewer of those trade-offs. There are yeah. a lot fewer of those things that make it more useful. There are also, based on some of the surveys I've seen and some of the data I've seen coming out in the last few years, fewer reasons for people to be attached to cars in highly urban contexts. And so one of the shifts that's going on is generations past the boomers don't have the love affair with cars that the boomers did. And so there's already a shift in car culture going on, especially in middle class and upper class urban populations. But that right there gets to one of the other issues with this. Even apart from the basic economics of it, Things like this tend to be driven and tend to see broad population responses in ways that don't cut cleanly along a city line so much as they do along, say, highly mobile upper middle class urbanites versus, say, somebody who's living paycheck to paycheck getting by, maybe in an urban context, Mm -hmm. but giving up that car that they can at least get themselves and rely on, even if they have to patch it up has different social signals and has Mm -hmm. different social value and has different, basically different payoffs, different risk versus reward built into it than it might if you're an upper middle class person or a upper class person. And those dynamics are often stupidly overlooked by the tech press. Yeah. But we shouldn't be surprised by that because the tech press is basically a bunch of upper middle class white guys talking about things that are interesting to them that intersect their life spheres. Yeah, and that to makes its some shame sense. and chagrin. Yeah. It makes some sense that that's what they want to talk about. But nonetheless, there's a responsibility to do better and consider how technology affects people that aren't just that category. And there's also my particular soapbox of the San Francisco bubble <laughs> in that yeah. if there's an article that says it was written in San Francisco about things going on in San Francisco, it's almost entirely non-generalizable to anywhere else in the entire world because San Francisco is so completely different than anywhere else. It is a non-place to end all (laughs) non-places that there is just an extreme disparity between what happens in San Francisco and what happens even in another tech hub like Raleigh Mm -hmm. where we are. Not the same. (laughs) Not the same. We have Lyft and Uber for sure. We have tech incubators. We have co-working spaces. But, you know, that's where the the connections stop mm-hmm. like and this is the one of the places that's closest to san francisco <laughs> so once you start moving even farther afield of tech incubator cities and regions then you start to get into things like look are you how are you going to convince mississippi that they have to not have cars right have to not have cars <laughs> like this is going to be an extremely difficult sell for a state for a region 
um, for multiple regions. The far west, south. Wyoming. Yeah, Wyoming, Arizona, Montana, yep. Idaho, South Dakota. All, all these places highly prize individualism and highly prize individual liberty and individual freedom and individual ability to move around. Mm-hmm. The There's just no way that you're going to be able to push a law through, even if, per your argument that you haven't said yet, um, <laughs> Even if you have the federal highway money tied to the idea of this self-driving cars, you have to put them on the roads. Otherwise, we won't give you any federal highway money. A lot of states are just going to say, you can take your highway money back because <laughs> we're, not, we're not doing that self-driving car thing. That's going to happen. Right. There's just not a need for high-tech solutions to some of these things in right. places like Wyoming. Right. And I, I think that's a fair point. I think the flip side of it is, Asking the question, and this starts to take us around into our sort of long view and how do we think about these things in the long term, independent of what given cultures will want in response to this. Is there a degree to which we have a responsibility to be willing to give up some of our personal preferences, to be willing to set aside some of the things we like or would prefer, even if that's just to the degree of saying, look, if you want to be a human-driven vehicle instead of a self-driven vehicle, you need to pass a more strict licensing test. You need to do like we do now with truck drivers or Mm -hmm. bus drivers. CDLs, yeah. Yeah, where you have to pass a higher standard of test. At what point does that become not just viable, but eminently reasonable and arguably necessary Mm. on the public health justification? Because on the one hand, I love driving a good car. I had my Mazda 3 in college and for a few years afterward, and it was a stick shift, and I loved driving that car. And when we sold it, when we moved here, I was sad, and now I drive what I call a mom utility vehicle. And it's a great car, and my wife adores it, and it bores me to death. And I can only imagine how much more I would be bored by a self-driving car. Well, I mean, you wouldn't see it as driving anymore. You'd see it, you'd just, you know, use the Wi-Fi and you'd get work done. (laughs) Right. You know, we would be honestly working 9 to 5 as opposed to commuting part of it or whatever. But that being said, I think we still do have to grapple with that responsibility to the good of the community, to the good of the people around us. And to say, look, if it's a hundred or a thousand times likelier that I'm going to kill somebody because I just like driving, then if I let the car drive for me, Maybe I need to be willing to give that up, and and maybe I need to find a way to redirect that desire. Maybe I need to be willing to go through that higher degree of certification and licensing. Maybe I need to say, you know what, I'm going to go over to a human driving arena that we set up in response to this, and racetracks. That's what I thought, too. Maybe those are things that we need to be willing to juggle and compromise with and at least ask the question— Where does my individualism, and I think the good of the person is a really, really good thing, but I think as Americans, we contend very strongly toward the individual above all, and as we've often said on this show, we don't think that's quite right. And while we don't take Matt Honan's line that this technology is inevitable— Also because we think there is a world outside of San Francisco. Yes, yes. While we don't think that— On the other hand, the community is all and the needs of the individual are meaningless. We don't embrace that for a second. Listeners know that. We do think that as individuals, we need to stop and evaluate more and ask the question more at a communal level, at a policy level. How do we think about things where, especially where human life is on the line? How do we think about these kinds of 
communal risk versus individual reward questions. And it's not cut and dried. And I think one of the biggest problems is that most people don't get into major life-threatening car accidents on right. a regular basis. Maybe you have one in your life, mm-hmm. or maybe you have two, five, ten years apart. If you're a bad driver, you know you're a bad driver, and you're not <laughs> listening to this right now. <laughs> you know, but most people don't have a sort of individual mandate on them saying like, oh, yes, I am that driver that might kill someone. Like, right. that's not how we think about ourselves. Like, if we did, then no one would drive. <laughs> like, that's just not, it's true. you know, we would either be terrified or legally liable in some way. Like, we would have this, these sorts of constraints put on us. So I think that one of the main issues that we have to grapple with as we think about this issue in particular, because we're definitely going to come back to the structure agency problem in a couple seasons. We already are starting a big series of episodes for it, but... In this particular instance, we really have to think about how do we get people to think about themselves as drivers Mm -hmm. and not as car owners? Because Mm -hmm. when you think of it as a car owning, you're like, what, you're going to take away my property now? (laughs) And that's going to fly in approximately five of the 50 states. (laughs) Like, that's just the the standard of how the base level politics go in Mm -hmm. a lot of different states is that property is sacrosanct at a ginormous level. Right. And so when you get people thinking in a property realm – like when they're thinking about what does it mean to own this thing, you're never going to touch that. Like it's just <laughs> never going to happen in America. Like that's just not going to fly. But when you get people thinking about what does it mean to drive and what does it mean to be a driver, that's when you can start to have these conversations about like, okay, well, you know, maybe we shouldn't be texting while we're driving as a first step. Like maybe that's maybe that's the first that's thing first that we do. Yeah. yeah, maybe we maybe we start there. Maybe we even put in some technological solutions so that we put in a chip in a car that says now you can't text because you're in a car. That's kind of invasive on the level of privacy in some ways, but in other ways, you want your car, you can still have it. <laughs> so you know, there's a lot of ways that we can talk about this, but I don't think we can even start to talk about it until we get people thinking about what driving is, thinking of themselves as drivers. as opposed to car owners. Right. And I think you have to start having the conversation that we've had over the last many decades about something like drunk driving, where there's an obvious fault in the case of the driver. And this isn't quite the same as that. But we've been able to have a national conversation about that and shift the discourse on it so that if you get in the car drunk, all of your friends think you're an idiot and are trying to stop you. Right. And there's stigmas attached to having a DUI both... Yeah, socially, socially and, and legally. legally and... and so starting to have some of that conversation will be necessary if any of the norms around self-driving is ever going to shift. Yeah. And I think maybe those are conversations we need to start having now so that we don't end up either in the hands of recalcitrant people who just want nothing of the new technology or in the hands of the technologists and technology lovers who just want to throw everything to the wind and not listen to that communal response. Because it can, it should. Yeah, I think there's really a lot that has to play between the needs of the community, where when you're on a road, you're in a community, whether you like it or not, with people Mm -hmm. that you've never met, that you have responsibilities to, which is weird, but that's the way it is. And so there's a lot of interplay that we have to deal with between the personal and the communal when it comes to driving. And I just don't think we do any of that yet. Even though I think ultimately we're never going to reach a tipping point. If we're ever going to, we need to have a different sort of conversation happening. Otherwise, it's just all going to get shot down in the state of Wyoming. (laughs) Before you go, one quick note and a happy one this week. I use some software development tools by a company called JetBrains. And about a month ago, they announced their new subscription-only pricing model. For years, they've sold one-off licenses for their software, and once you bought it, you had it forever. And they announced that they were going to take the tack that Microsoft and Adobe and others have taken in the last few years, where 
you would have to constantly subscribe in order to keep using the software. The worst. But unlike Adobe and Microsoft, they did something awesome. They listened when they got hundreds of comments saying, that won't work for our company. That won't work for me as an individual. What we really need is for a way that shoots between these two, because we see the value of the subscription. That gives you stabler income, that lets you upgrade more easily, etc. But give us an off-ramp. And they did. They said, you pay for a year, you get to keep that license forever. You're good. fallback license is what they're calling it. And it's brilliant. We think it's amazing. Other people, take heed. Do it. Adobe, I'm looking at you. I'm looking at you real hard. Real hard. The music at the beginning of the episode was Spring by Sam Birchfield. We used it by permission. Please don't use it without his permission. Thanks to Jeremy W. Sherman for sponsoring the show this week, and you can find a full list of sponsors in the show notes. If you'd like to sponsor us, you can do so at patreon.com slash winning slowly or give directly at cash.me slash dollar sign winning slowly. Never gets old. It, it never does. Those show notes are available at winningslowly.org slash 3.13. And we are going to give 10% of all the money that we get contributed to the Internet Archives because we think they're doing great work saving the Internet and making it easier for researchers of the future. Also, if you could take a moment and rate us on iTunes, we would love that. That helps us out a lot. Uh, if you want to interact with us, you can see us on Twitter or app.net at Winning Slowly or on Facebook, or you can use old-fashioned email and hit us at hello at winningslowly.org. You might end up in the show. It's happened before. As always, thanks for listening, and thanks especially this week to NC State for hosting us. Go Wolfpack! So, that is like case of worst resort. <laughs> we have a backup. We have a backup if everything goes totally foobar. This is the first time we've ever done this, so... Live. Yeah, we've done the podcast a few times. <laughs> like over 50. But this is the first time we've done this. So, there might be some hilarities. Feel free to laugh out loud at them. Yes. And it didn't happen. And, like, that's literally what Matt Honan's article just reeks of. It Like, this is the future. And, like, yeah, it's totally true. There's definitely going to be self-driving cars at some point. But the problem... Is that my Mac just restarted itself. I thought you said only Windows do that. A major split between Earl and Rubin on... <laughs> there's a blooper. I, there's right a there. blooper.